Shelley Effect is sponsored by WallStreetWindow.com and listeners like you. And now, and now the, most, the most underrated voice in all, in all media, Chuck O'Shelley. Fourth day of March 2021, allegedly, according to that thing we call a calendar. And this, indeed, is the show you were looking for. Guess how I know that? Because you found it. So anyway, the Ocelli Effect on Ocelli.com, also being broadcast or simulcast live on a a variety of other places. Uh, I I can never figure out what the call letters are in Ireland. They've changed them a few times, so there's there. The Post-Truth World Media Hub. Uh, also, Real Liberty Media, all that good stuff. Anyway, doesn't matter. You might be catching this as a podcast anyway, so who knows what day or time it is where you are. But as I speak, it is Thursday, Thursday, the second to last broadcast day of the week for the show. And it is that day in March I mentioned, the 4th. Anyways, tonight um, we are continuing a series that uh, that I started, well, let's see, I guess it's about four episodes ago. I think this is the fourth episode. Either way, one way or another, no matter how many episodes it takes, and uh, with the speed at which this author writes, who knows, we might have to add one. Uh, because he has put out a, a, a voluminous amount of information in a handful of volumes. Larry Hancock, if you go to Larry-Hancock.com, you can see not only his blog, but uh, his many, many books. And there's a, a new release coming up very soon which we'll wind up covering later on in the series. And in fact, this is a subdivision of the complete works of Larry Hancock, the Larry Hancock collection, so to speak, because this is the national security section. The next section will be on political assassinations. And with that, um, it's interesting, the book that we're going to have to cover tonight, because never thought I'd have to talk to Larry Hancock about this. Unidentified. Yeah, guess what that sounds like? Unidentified flying objects or maybe UFOs. I don't know. You've thought about it. You've heard about it. Definitely almost anybody I know has an opinion on it. But um, Larry Hancock tackled this in this particular book. And uh, before I go any further, let me find out how he's doing. Larry, how are you tonight? I'm doing good, Chuck. The closer we get to spring and warmer weather, the better I'm doing. Ah, well, you know, warmer weather is helpful, <laughs> right? And, uh, gee, it's just into March, so in some parts of the country it's still cold. Um, you know, it's it's warming up considerably where I am too, Larry, just so you know. But uh, it, it's, it's going rather nicely as far as the weather goes. Things are changing. The world is weird. But uh, with that, I, I think this is an interesting part of the national security discussion because... Here it is. I I really never would have thought I had to discuss UFOs with you. I thought that would have been one of those areas. I mean, even though you and I have discussed suspicious murders, we've never gone into the Marilyn Monroe area or the Princess Di area, which I consider to be a little outside of the, you know, need for absolute political uh, understanding, right? There's a whole lot of controversies you and I could discuss, but you've never really written on them. And I thought, as soon as I saw this and realized what the uh, subject matter was going to be, this was going to be really unusual for you. And uh, it is. But then again, maybe not so much. Now, why do I sound like I'm contradicting myself, Larry? Help me out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I can understand why someone would, would think that. I, I think the best way for me to, to put it into context is every book I've decided to write, every subject I've 
tackle many subjects, but those subjects I've, I've decided to write about. When I dug into them, I found that there was enough material, there were enough documents after, after enough years had passed that we had enough insight into what the real inside history was of the subject that a, a new history could be done. A, a, a better history could be done looking from the inside because as, as we've discussed many times, the outside history of events the public history that's written immediately after the event, you know, the popular history, if you would, it kind of becomes embedded in the textbooks or in the the TV programs is often very superficial compared to the real inside history. So, you know, this, this is a subject area that after many decades, we finally, as with other areas I've written about, we got enough documents released so that we could see what the the Air Force was really thinking about UFOs in the early years, uh, regardless of what they might be saying. We could see what the CIA had to say on the subject. Uh, we could see what a couple of presidents had to say on the subject and whether or not they were concerned, regardless of what was in the popular press. So mm. for context, I would say this is another inside history book mm. of of the UFO experience, starting during World War II and going into the 1970s, 1980s in particular. There's some more current information, but for several decades, and it's an inside history. But the other thing is, after I wrote the book Surprise Attack, or in, in writing Surprise Attack, mm-hmm. I learned a lot about how certain areas of intelligence work, not I mean, we talk about the CIA, we, but I'm talking about intelligence collection and intelligence analysis, how that whole system works. And what I tried to do and then identified was to do an inside history book of what was really going on inside uh, of the, the services and the government in regard to the national security issue of UFOs, and then come back and take another cut at it and essentially do what the government had not done. Okay. Uh, if you dig into the history, you find that they never really did a true intelligence study of the phenomena. So I figured, hey, they didn't do it. Let me take a shot. It well, would be limited, right. but I'll take a shot. <laughs> well, you know what? There's probably a study somewhere, but we're not allowed to see it, uh, that is like yours, but not, not anything that the public's going to get its hands on. So with that, let me hit you with a one-two punch of two stupid questions. <laughs> Okay, ready? Um, here, here it is. First of all, did any of the now? Now you and I both know that from time to time, the majestic documents question, uh, JFK, uh, the thesis out there regarding was he killed in order to cover up his knowledge about aliens? Um, you know, Bill Cooper pushed that for a bit, along with his other stuff. I mean, other people have, you know, over time sporadically introduce those documents into the JFK research community. That's dumb question number one. Did this uh, inspire any of this look at unidentified and the, the, the follow-up, the real, the real punch, right? After the jab, here comes the hook. Um, did you have an opinion about UFOs? Because, you know, a, a lot of people would start out a book that where they have to study this intensely, 
And they might say to themselves, you know what, I want to prove that UFOs exist or I want to debunk it. Um, I have a viewpoint about visitors and aliens one way or another, and you can call them other things. But anyway, did you have an opinion about UFOs when you started writing the book, number one? Number two, was it in any way inspired by the sporadic introduction of the really, really terribly formulated uh, ideas about JFK and UFOs? Did any of that spark your interest uh, as far as writing the book? So there's your two your two stupid questions, Larry. How's that? <laughs> well, on the first one, uh, the, the literal answer would be I had an interest, but I had no specific opinion. I had reached no conclusions. I had I have followed this subject since around 1964. Uh, I was a member of two of the earliest UFO study organizations, uh, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, and the National NICAP was another. I was, I was member. I followed their newsletters. I followed the stories, the literature. My collection of quote unquote UFO books is probably larger than any of my other collections of books, including JFK, if, really? if not larger, at least challenging. So I had been interested in the subject. For a long time, but I had not really engaged with it again until about I, I had left it behind as I, I went into the other areas that you talked about, Chuck. I didn't revisit it until uh, beginning about eight years ago when I really decided to become current on it. And what I found at that time was that there were there were studies and there were studies, but they have been released. So we do know what people took seriously and what they didn't. Um, so the answer answer your question, I did not have an opinion going into it. However, by the time I finished applying the the study techniques that I just just mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. I did reach a conclusion, and the conclusion has to do with whether or not these are truly unconventional anomalous devices whether they are just, you know, mistaken, just mistaken, unidentified, whatever, or are they really anomalous? So I did reach a conclusion. On the second part of that, uh, your question, did the did MJ-12, did all of the, um, and all the follow-on things that have been inserted into the UFO dialogue that have tremendously muddied it all, everything from the animal mutilations to uh, Serpico, uh, you know, which was a was a takeoff on, yes, we really did send the crew to an alien planet, or yes, we actually are engaged in space wars now, and we have our own secret space fleet. And, yeah, tremendous amount of that sort of stuff. I did look at all of that. I found that two or three really good books and really good studies had been done to to deconstruct that stuff, and I found no reason to go into it myself. I mean, I can refer people to really good work that was done on it, and I didn't see any need to repeat it. So I, I tried to do something that hadn't been done before with, with what I refer to in the book as an indications intention study, which is, are these things really there? Should they be taken seriously? And can we reach a conclusion on at least some of what they've been doing over the last few decades? Right. So this brings us to a point where you have to take an objective view 
and say to yourself, all right, first of all, I accept that there is some level of phenomena here, which is something or other. Uh, could be that we're looking at, again, as many people have postulated, secret uh, uh, organizations, foreign organizations, even maybe they also have, you know, secret space programs, aircraft, highly classified stuff that behaves in ways that would defy conventional logic as we know it, or even physics, these kind of things, and they get spotted once in a while, or you have a legitimate phenomenon which is not necessarily classified, which may indeed be extraterrestrial because it is still as yet unidentified. Um, so you have these two schools of thought, and all you have to do really to begin this study is accept that there are incidents where uh, these things happen in the first place, and then you start to take a look at, as per usual with the Larry Hancock method, how is it that the national security apparatus reacted to it? Um, and also, you, you can't just limit this to the United States. Now, as we've seen over the past just few decades, there have been, uh, you know, document dumps, releases, video clips and films released from governments all over the world. And this is, uh, just like everything else, something that you have to view internationally as well. So... Uh, how how did you take up that particular part of it? I mean, did you just stick with the American because it was, uh, you know, the, the easier access, or did you go elsewhere with it? I mean, you know, j just give me the thought process here for collecting from, okay, objectively, something is going on here, and I'd like to look at the way that national security, again, this is the subsection we're in, how does it react, what does it do, what does it know? Uh, all of those things, you have to collect them all together before you can even begin to construct this narrative, right? Yeah, and there's some excellent, there's some excellent data internationally from Japan and, and France. Uh, the French studies are excellent, excellent studies out of Spain, Brazil. The problem with that is, and, and it's an in interesting problem, is we all, we have too much data. We have so much data that you get buried in it. And some of it is really good, like the French data. And then there is a, a body of international data that literally has hundreds of thousands of sightings that is unfiltered. You know, it's just reports, and it's growing exponentially because it's reported online. Um, so you, you get overwhelmed by data. So the first... The first question is, I mean, certainly it is an international phenomena, and there are some, some real similarities, but here's here's the problem. Um, I decided, in, in looking at the inside history, the point is, from a national security standpoint, I can get American documents. I can get documents from the Air Force, the Navy, the CIA, and these are documents that I know that are real and released, and I can I can work with those. Going to the primary source documents from overseas, that would be extremely difficult for me right. to do. So in the book, Unidentified, I, I deal strictly with this as a national security issue for the United States. Um, Fair enough. However, mm -hmm. even, even to take a step down further in the work that I've been doing and I continue to do, it's like we get we get stuck. The, the big collection, a, after you make the first decision, which you just outlined, which is an assessment that says, is this really anomalous? Should I really spend time on it? Is it worth it? 
then you get to go to collections. And what I determined to do in both the book and in the ongoing, actually, studies that I'm doing was to stay with the actual military reports and law enforcement reports. Essentially, it's much like what I did with with my JFK books, some other books. It's kind of like, what sources are you really going to use? And in this instance, I made the decision to use sources where the source had some skin in the game. If it's a military report, it was official. If somebody did it, it was going to be an investigated, and if they lied, they get busted. Uh, law enforcement, much the same way. So the vast bulk of what I, I deal with in the book and in my studies comes from people that have, as I said, skin in the game. They're not right. They're not just reporting with no consequences, and that means the reports all get investigated to some extent and are much more detailed. And see, then you've yeah. got some real data to work with. Well, see, this is a lot different than just civilian storytelling. And, and I promise I'm going to lay off of you in the second hour a lot more and just let you tell tell this tale. But these are these are questions I have in my mind as you're speaking. Um, <clears throat> you know, thing is that on one level, you do have to view this as threat assessment. If you have a legitimate phenomena or something out of the ordinary being reported by just, for example, Air Force uh, pilots, uh, people that are monitoring radar, uh, you know, things like this, y- you, you have an element here where this is threat assessment. How does studying this phenomena differ from conventional threat assessments, say, from foreign militaries, which are known to be, you know, of, of value as far as threat assessments, but... Uh, like, let's just say there is a new weapon being developed by name a country, doesn't matter. Uh, and, you know, we discover it somehow uh, by encountering something anomalous. How does this differ from taking a look at the unidentified aircraft, or is it really part of the same process? Certainly in the early years, it's it was the same. Because the first, back in 1947... Air intelligence, of course, it, you know, Army Air Force was in the process of transfer, transitioning to U.S. Air Force. The very first in se- intelligence assessment that was made came out of the Air Intelligence Command, and bottom line said that the reports we're getting from our people, the key reports we're looking at, are real. This is not something that's visionary or fictitious, and that's a quote from the report itself. So they assumed that what they were seeing was real, that it was un- these were unidentified objects, and the first assumption that they made was that it was very likely Soviet reconnaissance. Uh, and that especially by – in the beginning, they were concerned that it was Soviet recon- reconnaissance, and they became even more convinced of that um, up through – 1950 and in the earliest years where uh, the Soviets actually demonstrated they had atomic weaponry. So this was taken very seriously as threat intelligence. The interesting thing is, if if you read the reports, they really not only were convinced that it was real, they actually prepared essentially a, a tasking report that says, look, here are the characteristics of these d- devices. Here are their flight profiles. Here's uh, 
a synopsis of their propulsion. Here's their maneuvering. Uh, and based on that, they concluded that, that most likely the Soviets had taken German aeronautical technology, jet engines and, uh, some new, new designs and had come out with a new type of high speed, high performance aircraft. Um, well, so a reasonable point, it was pure threat intelligence right and that's a reasonable assessment considering the fact that the US did acquire German scientists etc <laughs> in order to uh, further its own programs so of course we knew that the other side might do the same thing um, <clears throat> but there, there's also you know some curious things that go on where I'm not sure which is legend and which is true because I never studied this deeply but taking a cursory look at stuff like uh, the situation surrounding the MiG jets and stuff like that, where, you know, incrementally information was discovered. And then, indeed, there was, you know, foreign technology that seemed to uh, be better than what it is we had here uh, in a couple of cases. Now, does that mean that, you know, they would seek to, uh, you know, just uh, uh, freak out and react. No, we might want to actually steal some of that technology, too, because, you know, the U.S. is not above stealing somebody else's tech in order to improve its position either. Let's keep that in mind. Um, but also, we're, we're being defensive of whatever the hell it is we're developing. Uh, you know, and, and there's, again, hard to separate sometimes legend from official uh, understanding when it comes to things like the... Um, Geez, the, the 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 jets that were resistant to being picked up on radar, uh, you know the um, oh man, I I can't even remember all the different names, but the different jets, the different types of uh, propulsion, the different types of uh, more silent running stuff. I mean, not only in the air, but on the uh, on the ground, underwater, even uh, there were different technologies developed uh, in, in a stealth sort of way. Uh, by different countries, and there were different speeds that were achieved at different times. There were different uh, flexibilities of aircrafts. I mean, all this stuff is in motion at all times, anywhere where there's uh, you know, a significant military budget in play for a foreign nation or ours. So it's kind of an interesting interplay where, yeah, at first a lot of this has to be chalked up, to, well, everybody's racing around trying to build the faster, better way to kill each other, so that's just reasonable. But uh, you start encountering other things along the way that, at the end of the day, seem to uh, not be explainable or attributable, I should say, to uh, the usual suspects, so to speak. So, of, co of course, there'd be this idea about the Germans, too, which, again, a lot of legend and a lot of real history here when it comes to technology being acquired uh, post-World War II especially. I mean, where did Werner von Braun come from? <laughs> you know? So, uh, just saying, and, and many other people, too, that uh, assisted with in anything from rockets to aircraft to the space program, etc. Right? So, the idea that, well, what, we're the only ones who thought of it? Probably not. Uh, what do you oh, think and, about and that? They were very focused because, as you say, we'd done our own collections work in Germany. So immediately at the end of 1947, after the first major UFO waves in the U.S., they really thought there really wasn't any doubt. I mean, they absolutely thought that these were new designs with either ramjet 
for pulse jet propulsion, and they were based on the blended wing, uh, flying wing Horton aircraft that had been developed in Germany. Now, Northrop had had also developed uh, blended wing, flying wing aircraft in the U.S., and so there was some familiar. There's an argument of who stole what idea from from whom. Uh, you know, did the Germans were certainly interested in the North flying wing, and we were interested in the Horton flying wings at, even at the beginning of the war. So, right, right. but they they knew that. So their first intense investigations into UFOs were in Germany. They tracked down the Horton brothers. They tracked down everybody who had worked with them. And there's actually an air intelligence assessment that says, and, and we don't, I'd like to see a lot more documents, but they, General Cabell, by 1948, was saying that the Soviet Union was in the process of building a large fleet of flying wing hmm. fighter bombers that they would use to support the Red Army's push into Europe. Uh, and that was, that was an, an assessment. There's, that's a threat assessment as raw as it gets. Um, mm-hmm. You mentioned some other technologies. What was also throwing them off and what I cover in the, in the book that you won't find in most UFO literature is there was another train of thought that by 1948, 1949, when you started seeing what were called the green fireballs over the Southwest, mm-hmm. that um, the Soviets had also taken the German missile technology and that some of the things that were being reported and actually there are newspaper he- he- headlines that essentially say the, the Russians are targeting sites in the U.S., with these things and these are actually essentially ranging shots and what made everybody nervous is that they actually recovered in two or three instances materials from what appeared to be impacts and those materials when they analyzed them Dow Chemicals analyzed some of them they looked like they were rockets and there again there are some reports that say they th- thought the Soviets might have developed what were called pencil rockets that could essentially very long range. They could be launched from ships. Um, and that there was a rocket threat after 1948, 1949 as well. Well, right. Now, now let me pause you there because there's also a variety of programs in play which end up leading to the developments of stuff like Skunk Works and Northrop Grumman's, you know, very interesting testing ground, along with Area 51, um, and and there's the stuff that the U.S. is doing that they're not willing to discuss. Um, there is a, a great deal of this attempt to use. Now, I know everybody cringes when you bring up weather balloons, but um, <clears throat> there were weather balloons and weaponized balloons <laughs> that were being used or attempted to be used uh, by everybody from us to the Japanese, um, you know, at exactly that time period, there's a lot of stuff floating in the sky that is uh, deniable um, from a military standpoint, from an experimental standpoint, um, not only, you know, propelled things, uh, like like you mentioned, the jets, which were sort of being seen toward the end of World War II and the firefights mixed in with the conventional aircraft of the day, 
Um, and the Germans seemed to have a, a limited number of these things at one point uh, before the end of the war that, uh, you know, in some cases are described as superior, in other cases not so much. Um, so there may have been a variety of results from that work, but still it guarantees that there was a lot more being done on the ground being developed and uh, it's not like the U.S. didn't want to develop these things along with Russia, along with, well, again, anybody who had a military budget to spend. How can we come up with the better way of waging war? So the technology was always being explored, and because there was a need to deny things, um, and and you do have some, I, I don't know what to call them, but anomalies in the sky which in some cases are attributable to things like weather and all that. Um, there is a case of, is this useful to cover up things that were maybe sighted in the sky that were not weather anomalies because there were measurable weather anomalies? I mean, a whole array of stuff is going on at this time, right? And also you have, well, obviously Roswell. And those things and how this comes out to the public and how that's been used and manipulated. So, again, kind of weird that you're able to condense this down into one book, in my mind, because there could be a lot of things that you could have to contend with in order to blanket the subject well. What do you say to that? Well, you're absolutely right. But, hey, we all know that I can take anything that could be 20,000 pages and condense it into only 400, which will also, like, you know, put everyone in the plant. Um, but yeah, I, unidentified, for example, goes into great detail in the constant level balloons that you're talking about. Right. Um, and these were first used by the Japanese. Uh, we use them, and and most people don't know that well before the U two, uh, we had a variety of global constant level stratospheric balloons that we were sending on photo reconnaissance flight over Russia. Uh, right. And I, I do go into that in detail. And the fascinating thing is also I go into the fact that the uh, <laughs> uh, the humorous aspect is that the CIA was actually involved in that. That was one of their programs. And they were hoping that everybody would, including the Russians, would think those balloons were actually UFOs. Um, and mm -hmm. they, and there are actually interviews with people who were doing the test and everything. It's like, yeah, the CIA guys were here and they were encouraging us, you know, these will, everybody will think these are, are, are balloons and, and they're UFOs and we can get away with it. And the problem was immediately as soon as they started launching them over Russia, about 40% of them started falling down within Russia. So it took the <laughs> Russians only, like, yeah. you know, a couple of months to figure out what was going on. It didn't really fool anybody. Same way with the U-2 later. Um, but, yeah, that that is all incorporated. I would say uh, there are several areas like that that, that are in unidentified that I go into that you don't find in the general UFO books, because what I'm looking at are exactly those things that do cross the line into national security. Right. What were we doing that might have been taken as? <laughs> it is fascinating to read some of the earliest documents that always conclude with, well, we've gotten all the data we can. We've studied it as much as possible. 
We just don't know that this is something of ours that somebody's not telling us about. You know, and you you can tell there was like, if it, if this is ours, would you please tell us so we can go do something like more important with our so, time? So we can do something else. <laughs> yeah, we can. You know, this is really. But I guess the good thing about that now is, you know, sixty years after the fact, we know really what was going on with our own developments. Although that was a that was mysterious and a possibility then. We really do now know what our capabilities were and what our capabilities weren't. So we can go back through a lot of that and not get lost into it. And I, I would say even, you know, for the first few decades, that wasn't true. You would still be wondering, could we really do that? And, and I'll make an interesting comment there because this is one thing that's persuaded me. I will tell you that the, unconventional characteristics of the best UFO sightings from 1947 and 1948. In other words, how do they maneuver this anomalous? What are their speeds that are anomalous? What are their accelerations and their G-loading that's anomalous? The observations from 1947 and 1948 are exactly the same that we're making in the 21st century. The the capabilities of these things have not changed. What they could do, what we see them do now, off when our aircraft carrier pilots engage with one of them, is exactly what they could do in 1948 when one of our interceptor pilots engaged with them. Right. Which, which tells you, you know, there's something, our tech, there's something really going on there because it's not like anybody got better. They, Whatever they are, they had all of those capabilities decades ago. There's nothing new. Right. Well, at least uh, there's nothing new considering what it is we can see. I mean, there is the possibility of stealth technologies just like, you know, we have them to some degree. Maybe they do, too. So I I leave that possibility open. A live question comes in, though, which uh, I I find interesting. Uh, Pre-1948, is there a difference between the Army Air Corps and the Army Air Force? Uh, Same thing. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Army Army Air Corps was usually that. The Army Army Air Corps was generally used post World War One into World War Two, and then it became referred to as the Army Air Force, and then the United States Air Force. The same thing goes with military bases. Um, When you're talking about the Army Air Corps, they're often referred to as Army Air Fields. Mm -hmm. And then they become bases. It's just kind of a general terminology. Well, and it's also true that the Army wasn't the only ones who had air bases. Uh, there's, you know, I mean, rather famously, I lived right next door at one point to the Lakehurst Naval Air Base uh, in New Jersey, where, <clears throat> you know, most famously, the uh, the Hindenburg went down. Um, but, and I think it went, again, in that, that same era that we're talking about where the Army called them fields, I think the Navy may re- refer to them as stations, like Naval Air Station, so-and-so. Right, right. But, I mean, to me, I just always referred to it as the Naval Air Base. 
but and, and it remained that way all the way until uh, the early 2000s when I left that area. I know it was still basically referred to as the Naval Air Base, but earlier on when the Hindenburg went down, yeah, I think you're right. I think it would have been referred to that way. So, okay, fair enough. I just wanted to get that question in. Chuck, I will say one of the things that, and to that listener, one of the things that drove me nuts in the book, and one of the reasons I got a special military editor was because of the transition between the Army and the Air Force, what something was called in a given year, like 95 compared to or 45 compared to 46, 47, 48, varied. I, I mean, you had to be exactly, precisely right, or people would go, oh, you got it wrong. And the same thing goes in the Air Force when they constantly change descriptions of the various commands, and it's just, <laughs> you can get really wrapped up in that sort of stuff. No, fair enough. I, I just, I, I thought it was a fascinating question because I recall seeing it referred to, and often when looking at military documents, you see a terminology change, um, even though the location hasn't changed and the basic functionality of the thing doesn't appear to have changed, but they call it something else. I mean, it's just, it, yes. you know, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying that... Uh, that happens all the time, but if you go through certain time periods like the World War II era into the post-World War II era, I mean, literally, if you study military actions uh, in between World War II and then what they say is the start of Korea, you have serious changes in terminology between those two places. <laughs> and um, I, I oh, guess, yeah. yeah, I guess that's exactly what you're saying here, because the more I think about it, that would be the right time period. Um and, uh, yeah, so this happens, but does it, you know, does it really matter effectively? No, but, you know, then again, people will, you know, criticize you for not getting the exact, you know, well, you're calling that a CIA station. That's not a station. Yeah, uh, it wasn't called a station at that point, or it is not called a station today, but it was, and yeah, I know. I mean, even even when you look at that kind of stuff, they, they sort of change the terminology uh, as they go. And as these things are developed, because at one time there was no, you know, separate branch called the Air Force, right? You know, so... Yeah, it's, it's all why fiction writers have it so much easier. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because they can create their own set of terminology, and whether it works or not, hey, look, in my universe it works. End of story, right? <laughs> so, you know, um, well, all right. Anyway, I, I just, I think that's an interesting question, but... So back to the the general premise, we've gotten through, you know, what you had to contend with dealing with this and your your choice of direction, the idea that you didn't go into it uh, with a thesis that was about, well, I'm going to prove that UFOs are uh, truly alien or anything else because you didn't have a position when you started writing this. However, you did say that you developed a position as you wrote it. Maybe we'll get back to that later, but let's continue on with the process here because uh, I find this interesting and we could begin um, getting into, you know, bit by bit where you want to go in the book. Uh, give us like a, you know, a beginning of the book and a middle sort of uh, fill and then, you know, give us an idea about the conclusions in it. Uh, and I think that'll probably take up easily the rest of our time tonight because, you know, how do you even begin Starting to, you know, again, I find this very tough. I, I would not take it on 
not for one book, I would say to myself, yeah, I better lay this out in a couple volumes. Uh, because I, I don't think I could, uh, you know, a, as concisely lay out the, uh, well, the, the story that you do, which you do rather effectively. I mean, obviously, it's not like the, uh, you know, encyclopedic compendium on this or anything. It, it is it is a good overview, though, without really missing too many major beats, I think. Um, but, you know, again, it's not an encyclopedia. But it's a hell of a start. And if if you have no idea about the way the national security apparatus reacts or reacted, I should say, uh, to this phenomena and what it was openly viewed as uh, unidentified gives you a very good snapshot of it and uh, doesn't really skimp on details. But then again, doesn't drown you in the minutiae. So uh, interesting job. What, where did you begin, and could you tell us how you started with your thought process on how do I start telling this story? Uh, sure, and I think that by by fencing it in, by focusing it on the national security focus, if you will, the thing that you – if this is going to be an inside history of UFOs as the national security apparatus dealt with them, it has to be in terms of threat. Because in all honesty, it's either a threat and they respond to it and take it seriously and study it, or somebody decides it's not a threat and they don't. So the story of a possibility of it being a threat begins during World War II uh, in both Europe and Japan, where you began to receive primarily from air crews, uh, some from the ground, but reports of unidentified objects with new capabilities that could be enemy weaponry. And, of course, what complicates matters is this is the exact point in time when the Germans were introducing a host of new types of aircraft, uh, anti-aircraft weapons. Uh, and so there was a reality there. And so what I, I go enter into the book enters into World War II and examines the kind of reports that were being generated and essentially analyzes those to say, all right, based on what we now know, uh, maybe not at the time, what, how much of that was real, how much of it was not real. And, and two things quickly emerge from that. One is, and it's kind of fascinating that nobody has really commented on this before, one is a verification of qualified observers, because what we find when we look at the record is basically every new German re weapon, whether it was a different type of aircraft, a different type of rocket, a different type of missile, a TV control missile, a radio control missile, were observed and accurately described by I allied airmen. And it's what, what really what you come out of that is, hey, when you've got people that are trained and experienced and they observe these things and give you a good description of it, you can believe it's real because World War II served as a test. And that's what I really do in the book is go through and relate these observations and tally them again against both the, the German and Japanese weapon systems. And that that proved one question to me is 
yeah, good observers give you lots of detail and tell you what they're saying. They may not know what it is. They may not understand it, but they can describe it quite well. See, now with with that, a a question did come in before you started explaining that, and I just saw it. Uh, I think it's appropriate to ask it here, and that is, is there a difference between what you saw observed by airmen and what you saw observed by, say, people on aircraft carriers or uh, ground-based radar people, whatever? Is there a difference in their observations does one to seem be to seem excuse me seem to be more valuable than the other? That's exactly how the question's worded. The observations from the air crew are more valuable because they generally were of an object, you know, something that they were directly perceiving. Uh, conf- uh, unfortunately, many of them were nighttime observations which get to be very confusing. But when we're talking about where I just was, the, a description of a new aircraft, a description of a rocket, for example, you had some some British air crews give exceptionally accurate descriptions of V-1s and V-2s, not only from seeing them in the air in daylight, but actually seeing them launched from France. Mm. So the air crew observations are generally very solid. The good ones are. The problem with the ground observations, the ground observations, especially from the Navy, were um, very often radar observations, and they were radar tracks. And unfortunately, it's early enough in the history of radar so that a lot of the radar phenomena, a lot of the reflection phenomena, the atmospheric phenomena weren't very well understood. So there are a lot of anomalies that showed up on radar from Navy ships. This is not only true during World War II, but Korea, that are interesting, but there was never a visual counterpoint. So, So, but but that proves to be... Same quality of information. No, fair enough, but that proves to be useful for confirmation purposes. Because if you have a guy in the air or an air crew observing something and the radar operator at exactly that time observes that there is definitely something there and it appeared to move at this speed uh it actually confirms the visual observations of the people in the air i mean it's useful in that way but in and of itself it's not as useful because the amount of information is limited is that right uh, that that's absolutely right and the the Reality is that we didn't have many of those combined air and radar observations during either World War II or Korea. Uh, a few, but not anywhere like the number that we would get in the early 1950s. Uh, starting in about 1952 in the U.S. when we really got an elaborate radar network going into place, 52 through 55, we started to get some really solid multiple ground radar air radar and air observer observations and that's when it gets really interesting but not so much during world war ii gotcha okay no fair enough um i i just you know again wanted to expand on the question that was asked so anyway back to it so you've got this fenced in to the national security reaction uh you know you've got a general idea so 
Where do you begin? What is the first circumstance you examine in the book? The first real circumstance. So, either, okay, a, a look at World War II and essentially a look at what was being considered as a potential threat and an evaluation of that threat. You know, what was being reported that was accurate and actually turned out to be new weapons or aircraft and what may well and in generally in most cases were misidentifications for various purposes. And I, I go into both of those in great detail in the first couple of chapters in the book. Then we move on to the immediate post-war situation, which uh, actually occurs in Scandinavia. And uh, that becomes very interesting because that is the period post-war where the United States has moved on to considering the Soviet Union as an actual adversary. And there is a whole wave of sightings that occur over uh, Scandinavia that are essentially when we when you can look at the U.S. documents, the conclusion uh, it, within UFO circles, this is often felt to be the first of the real appearance of UFOs. Uh, what I see in unidentified uh, as far as the intelligence community is concerned and even the Scandinavian nations they ended up attributing it primarily to Russian psychological warfare and the use of some rockets, some uh, – it, it gets to be really interesting and really detailed, but that's that's the next phase. So first, first phase is World War II. Uh, the next phase is Scandinavia and the quote-unquote ghost rockets, and then we move into 1950, uh, 1947 and the first real wave of American UFO sightings that occurred in 1947. Uh, so those are – when we get to 1947, we move to the United States physically, and we look at what the Air Force and the Navy did to respond to those, what groups they set up to study them, what their conclusions were, and what we find out is is that the conclusion, as I, I said earlier, is yes, these are real, and they are most likely a threat, and then we make, need to take them very seriously and both the Navy and the Air Force, although primarily the Air Force, cooperated in, for two years at least, a really serious intelligence study of what these things were. Uh, right. But, of course, that was not what the press releases said. And that's what I try to deal, detail in the book is, here's what the Air Force and the Navy were doing internally, and here's the data that they were really collecting and working with. And here are all their press releases saying, oh, this is all funny. These are all people. This is silly season newspaper stuff. These are hoaxes or fun stories. And, and you get a really – you get a good education as when any security situation arises, what you do internally versus what you tell the public to make them feel better. Well, right. And there's also uh, – th this is where you have to, even though you're relying mostly on uh, you know military – looks at this stuff, you have to acknowledge that sometimes the Office of Naval Intelligence is actually activated at this point by civilian reports. Um, 
in addition to military reports, right? So you kind of have to look at this both ways, where sometimes it was initiated by something that could indeed be reported in some local newspaper on local radio somewhere, um, and this would activate the ONI. And I'm wondering, at this time and throughout this time period, quite frankly, what the NSA's involvement is. Because they are obviously the people that are tracking communications, so they would have to at least be consulted on all this stuff anyway, um, because they they would want to know what was communicated about it. So who would you turn to but the NSA, right? Um, um, in all ahead. honesty, I would say you might think that, but that's not who really became involved in the game. The, the people that came, became, as you said, and then... <laughs> a lot of reports were coming in from civilians. Oh, so, sometimes, back, sometimes, Larry, sometimes, Larry, I ask questions because I know the answer. So, <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> it's okay. Go ahead, please. For, for the listeners, in case you would think, uh, you know, um, because this was a essentially a domestic security issue, and you know, the Cold War was leaping into place. The body that became directly involved in it during the first three years in particular, was the FBI. So you would end up with a lot of military reports going to the military, a lot of reports in the newspapers uh, or whatever being examined by the military. They, They weren't ignoring them. They were taking civilian reports. But you were also the FBI engaged for a time because, in all seriousness, they felt that this might be a Soviet-Russian psychological warfare activity, and that these might be communist um, assets that were actually planting these stories to divert the U.S. during the Korean War. Uh, there, there was. It's hard to, to understand at this range in time, but there, there was a real thought that the communist sympathizers were so active that they were, and and so widespread in the U.S., that they were positioning themselves to divert the U.S. and to sabotage air bases and airfields uh, in the event that the Soviet Union decided to directly intervene, not only in Korea, but I can tell you at this point in time, we know the Air Force was really anticipating a Soviet airstrike down the west coast to take out all the major aircraft plants from Seattle on down to L.A. And uh, one of the things that I I do try to cover in the book is to interweave the actual air defense situation with the UFO problem. Because, again, we may look at this in terms of UFOs, but through 1952 – the military was looking at it in terms of a, a real active Soviet threat. And, and we're not kidding. I mean, we might laugh at it at this point in time, but they, they moved large quantities of equipment and aircraft in anticipation of strikes coming in against the Northeast Corridor and the West Coast Corridor. Well, right. And there was also the thought of, you know, possibilities of Japan taking revenge on the West Coast uh, because they would have some air access to us. And some of those things were considered uh, by the Japanese. So it wasn't like it was an unrealistic threat. 
Um, and, you know, an odd thing comes in uh, through Skype, and I'm not sure how to enter this, but be the last thing we cover this hour. Uh, during this time period, you would encounter Guy Bannister actually being involved in a UFO investigation. The documents have come out about this, where this was when Bannister was working for the FBI. Uh, I, I mean, a lot could be said here, but you're familiar with what this listener's talking about, right? Yes, I am. Uh, he as That goes along with my remark, is the FBI got very actively... that They got especially interested in investigating anything that was recovered, and that's what Bannister did out of his field office uh, uh, in the Dakota, somewhere up in the north northwest. Uh, they investigated a crash which and a recovered object, which turned out to be a hoax. But right. the FBI was very much – they wanted to get their hands on stuff to make sure it wasn't being manufactured and planted by common, communist sympathizers. Well, no, exactly. So I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is, is that this is not uh, a huge, uh, uh, you know, conspiratorial deal. But some people have tried to tie this to the Kennedy assassination. I'm like, no, this would be just one of the many, like, hundreds of things Guy Bannister would have had to have done during his ti- tenure uh, with the FBI. This is his day job. This is I mean, his this day is job. What did. Yes. Um, now, would would he have been after it because? He was worried that there was some Soviet plot or Soviet supporter plot uh, regarding this Cold War time. Yep, that's exactly what it would have been. Uh, but is it, you know, anything other than him doing his day job? No, because there's a lot of uh, people around the country having to go and take a look at things like this, which may or may not be hoaxes, uh, which may be related to us later as hoaxes that maybe weren't. Now, there's other questions about this. Uh, but from what we can tell, I mean, this has nothing to do with anything except, coincidentally, while Guy Bannister was employed by the FBI, he definitely was involved in a UFO uh, incident, and it is documented. So I, I, I think that's a and fair answer. Interesting factoid is also, and I cover it in the book, is that this only occurred for a time span of about six months because somebody told Hoover that the Air Force was just dumping all these reports of obvious hoaxes onto him so they didn't have to deal with them. And he got upset and then ordered that they wouldn't do that anymore because they were just getting the, you know, chump work that the Air Force didn't want to do. <laughs> right. So turns out, and that's the thing, is if the FBI dug through the crap pile and found a couple of gems, it would probably be taken back up uh, by the military, wouldn't it? <laughs> so... Yeah. Uh, you know, so so you got to keep that in mind. That this is this is the uh, battle of bureaucracies, uh, in some cases. And again, you have you know civilian hoaxes. You have misunderstandings. You have the possibility that even though you had the military investigating things, other parts of the military were not necessarily allowed to tell them, "Hey, look, don't bother investigating. That's just something we were working on." Um, you know, you, you got a whole matrix of stuff going on during that time period. Uh, along with the civilian reports, and indeed some people misinterpreted things they saw. Some people did see things that we don't really know the nature of, <laughs> you know, and it's uh, it's an odd time period. So it's uh, it's something to put in, uh, w- w- here we go again, Larry, in context. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I think that that's a, a good way to end this first hour on Unidentified. Again, this is part of the Larry Hancock Collection which we are doing every one of Larry's books one by one on the Ocelli Effect. And tonight, 
It's Unidentified. And in the second hour, I'll even uh, try and give you the rest of the title. (laughs) How about that? As we continue to discuss this, and we've only gotten into the very beginning of the book, the first incident that Larry looked at, uh, and the context which he laid out to begin with, and uh, gee, isn't that the way Larry writes his books? And they are extremely educational. I urge you to go to Larry-Hancock.com and explore all of Larry's work. But anyway, this episode will be back in just a few minutes. Larry Hancock, unidentified on the Ocelli Effect. Stick around. Gold, silver, the stock market. WallStreetWindow.com. Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com. Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State understood these trends professionally for many years and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge wallstreetwindow.com go there now go there now go there now in denial secret wars with airstrikes and tanks by larry hancock Secret wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. Larry Hancock's book, In Denial, rips the cover off many of them. Using new files, it exposes things about the Bay of Pigs that no one has ever written about before. It shows why it really failed and why the United States did not learn from it. Secret wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. It also shows why other countries today are doing secret operations with more success. This is the book that puts what some want to deny into the light. In denial, secret wars with airstrikes and tanks. Larry Hancock. For more information, go to Larry-Hancock.com. Pick up your copy of In Denial at Amazon.com in digital or physical form. Do you like history, real history, that you were never taught in schools? Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia. By author Mike Swanson, with new documentation never seen before. That'll open your eyes to events that led up to this. Why? The Vietnam War, nuclear bombs and nation building in Southeast Asia, 1945 through 1961. Get your copy today at Amazon.com. Why? The Vietnam War. By author Mike Swanson. The views expressed by callers, students, or anyone else who happens to get on the air at Ocelli.com do not necessarily reflect the views of Ocelli.com or Chuck Ocelli. And we are not responsible for any stupidity which might ensue. Thank you. When a fan of the Ocelli Effect calls in to the Ocelli Effect. I just wanted to call in and tell you and Michael Swanson and J.T. Sicilian, all of the guests that you have, how much I love your show. Always interesting. It's always informative. I just wanted to tell you in person, on the phone, I mean, I love you. I love your show. I, I love everything you do. I will always be there to support you. You know that. We appreciate you so much. Uh, you, you have okay. no idea. Thanks. And most of our fans just send hate mail and death threats. Ocelli.com.
Chili at chili.com. Five bucks a month is the price of coffee. Go to chili.com, hit the donate button. And if we all do that part, we will get him as wired as a computer. Don't know if that's it, but just support him. He's a good thing. Great show, great people, and great topics. So that's it. Thank you. Appreciate that. Of course, you can do it on patreon.com or you can, uh, you know, because I have a link there on the website. You can just click the Patreon banner, go there, or become a member at ochelli.com. Wasn't trying to do a commercial, but do a appreciate you for thinking of it nature boy thank you and also thank you for your support personally my friend ochelli.com learn from our rapidly repeat history my brother that's where i'm coming from i'll be all proud to the people and now the most underrated voice in all media chuck ochelli second hour of the Ocelli Effect begins now here at Ocelli.com, but of course you could be hearing this somewhere else, sometime else, so no matter who you are, where you are, welcome to it. I am uh, continuing my series with Larry Hancock, and we are going to go through every single book he wrote, one by one. Now, it doesn't mean that I haven't covered them before, but we are going to do it a little different in this series, and I think I'm accomplishing that so far. Unidentified is the book we're on tonight. And uh, frankly, uh, uh, even though I did, when this book was released, discuss it with Larry, um, there th- th- this is a little different this time. <laughs> and uh, I- I've gotten a chance to digest it more. I mean, I barely skimmed uh, Unidentified, and then I did finish reading it because, listen, you-, you get one of Larry's books, you have to finish reading it. Uh, <laughs> it's just that simple. I don't know what that means. I'm endorsing the book, yes, and of course... Uh, you, you hear the commercial for In Denial during the break. Another book I recommend, but um, not the one we're talking about tonight. And we're not even done with the national security subset of Larry Hancock's complete works. So anyway, back to it. We were at the year 1949. Um, some dispute and discussion in my chat room about uh, what did Guy Bannister actually find and blah, blah. You listen. That in and of itself could be a study, I'm sure. (laughs) Okay, but the FBI's response is just a notation that, um, you know, J. Edgar Hoover has commentary about this stuff. And indeed, there is, uh, you know, 
a bit of a history there when it comes to the bureaucracies competing with each other. Uh, the Office of Naval Intelligence comes into play. The Air Force. I mean, Army Intelligence. There's a lot here. As, as a matter of fact, when we get a little further into Unidentified, there is uh, the curious case of a bunch of stuff that happened at a military base that um, is is kind of... Well, to my mind, mostly inconclusive stuff, but very weird. And who knows? We may have to get into that a little bit before we're done. But, Larry, back to it. We're at 1949. <laughs> so we're, we're 1949, and, and we we know from the documents that the Air Force, Air Intelligence, and, and Air Technical Intelligence at Wright-Patterson really thought that they had it solved. Uh from the profiles that they built, from the reports they had. So they went to look for these these new Orton uh, flying wing, new propulsion system devices, and that did not work out. And basically, as it turned out, they, they could not relate that to what was being reported. So they, they were very frustrated. They had to back off that lead. But, you know, then they, they get to be in a bit of a quandary. It's sort of like, well, if you look at the internal reports from Wright-Patterson and Air Intelligence, they themselves get to be frustrated because it's not what they thought it was. They can't come up. There are two things that higher command wanted to know. They wanted to know, you know, what they were and where were they coming from? Because unless you know the origins, um, then you don't know how to prepare your defense or how to prepare a preemptive action. And they couldn't tell them either one. They, they literally didn't have got to remember this. We're going into the Korean war, 1949, 1950, uh, even into 1951, basically the vast majority of what we can build and what can re repurpose from world war two is going into the, the war in Korea. Uh, we don't, we don't have a lot of interceptors at home. As a matter of fact, when air intelligence would request that specific interceptors be allocated to engage and identify these UFOs, they're told there are no aircraft available. Uh, there are very few continental U.S. Uh, radars available, only in the locations we talked about in the Pacific Northwest. And in the Northeast, just a few radar sets so that they don't have much ability to collect data, regardless of what's being reported across the United States. They're really stymied. So their first right. first solution didn't work out. They're not able to collect much data. And it, it what I really cover in the book at this point in time is what happens when you can't tell your boss that you can, can successfully complete your assignment. It's like you guys are intelligence and you can't tell me what this is and you said it was real but you can't tell me what it is or where it's coming from well see and here's the thing unless you're at groom lake right it, it's it's difficult to uh necessarily have the tools required to gather the information number one number two even when the information is gathered there's the consideration of whether it is shared intelligence or not depending on the circumstances. So you have people that might indeed be investigating things who do not have full access 
to uh, some intelligence which could easily just solve their case. Um, and then you have others that are being told not to investigate things, uh, but not being given a reason which would be easily you know, understood if it was like, look, we already know what this is, and you don't need to know what this is, but that's it. So some of them are just going off on these dead ends because there is a... Uh, uh, you know, a wall that they can't breach within their own agency. Um, I mean, is is that an accurate description? Or, you know, I mean, again, we're transitioning from post-World War II, which <clears throat> means that production levels are now decreased as far as hardware goes, even though development might be increased. Um, and not all of that information is being shared either. So you could have something, uh, let's just say, potentially going at a high speed across your radar. You report it, but it's really nothing because it was a test aircraft. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it just sounds very confusing to me. Am I wrong or right about this? You're right to, to stomach some. Let's put it this way. There are certainly, and I talk about in the book, there are a couple of reports that are very likely. I'm one thing that's occurring is mm-hmm. all of the very, as you said, all the very high-speed tests and all of the really advanced aircraft tests are going on out in the, in the deserts. You know, uh, they, it's just one location. I mean, they don't fly all over the U.S. And there's certainly one incident that comes familiar as a very high-altitude silvery aircraft a silvery object that interceptors try to go after and get was probably one of the early B-47 jets, uh, stratospheric bombers. Uh, so, yeah, that, that did confuse the situation. But that's that's a subset. That's You can almost figure out where that's going. The other thing that confuses this situation is the um, stratospheric balloons, the constant altitude balloons that we mentioned earlier. And that does confuse the situation. But you can pretty much parse, you know, now at this distance, we can parse those out. They couldn't then, so it added to the confusion. But I I think what really happens is, yeah, it's, it's a frustrating situation. They can't get the data that they need to resolve it. So the net result is what, what early on was referred to as project sign. In other words, we have there is a sign. Something's going on. We need to take it seriously. We need to investigate it and deal with it. Ends up being turned into Project Grudge. Okay. Now, um, the significance is probably that everybody that was associated with sign gets transferred to a new job, except those guys who were skeptics in the first place. They take over the project. And from then on, for the next two years, it's, oh, there's nothing out there. It's all misidentification. We don't have to explain it because there really wasn't anything there. Those guys just, you know, like made a mistake. Uh, and so from, they, they right. stop looking at the big picture. They start, stop looking at, start looking at, at a report by a time and coming up with any explanation they can to write it off the books. Now, publicly, even when airmen try to relate to, say, their local newspaper when they go home, that they saw something strange. Now, I I don't recall if this was covered in Unidentified, but I'm sure you had to make a mention of it. Um, You have airmen going home, let's just say, and talking to, you know, 
hometown news, wherever the hell they are. Um, and they describe stuff, and then there are explanations that are given by, uh, you know, alleged military figures and real provable military figures uh, about, well, you know, at high altitudes, people see things, sometimes they hallucinate. Uh, in fact, there are reflections and all kinds of strange you know, sort of well-grounded explanations for anomalies that may have indeed been sighted so as not to call their own, uh, you know, trained observers and pilots liars, but to say that they were mistaken. And the public is mistaken because, yeah, we do use weather balloons. We're not going to tell you all what we use them for, but we use these things we call weather balloons, right? And as you said, you know, sometimes there, there was a, a fairly aggressive and interesting <laughs> surveillance program that goes on. There are other instances of uses for experimentation of these types of high-altitude balloons. Uh, well, maybe it was just a balloon and it was just there to track clouds. Um, a lot of these, you know, seemingly benign explanations for the anomalies, and that's done in public, but it's also done uh, among certain levels of the military, not necessarily the people who are deep in the uh, intelligence sector, but then that starts to change as you go deeper into intelligence. Is this an accurate description of this time period as well, uh, as far as what the public knows and, you know, the things that you get on your History Channel, you know, Area 51 type shows and things like this. They always point to these, you know, public reports. And then here's the counter report. Um, you know, it's not just made for TV. That was a real thing that was going on at that time, wasn't it? Yeah, it's very accurate. In fact, it actually even gets a little nastier than that because you see, start to see a lot of political infighting. The guys at uh, Wright-Patterson at the Air Technical Intelligence Group who are really supposed to be doing this study and solving the problem are not coming up with the answers. The senior officers at Air Intelligence in Washington, D.C. recognize this as an opportunity. It's like, okay, if those jokers can't come up with an answer, I'm certainly not going to be saying that there's something real there. I'm going to start subtly suggesting that there's nothing real there. And there are some statements that are issued by senior air intelligence officers that are really pretty nasty, even about their own pilots, about military pilots, don't know what they're doing, don't know what they're saying. And it, there's a bit of nastiness. At this point in time, it begins from 49 into 50. It becomes a real political football. And quite frankly, the guys that were taking it seriously get transferred they rotate to another job. They leave the service. And it's the, the skeptics who kind of rule the day. Unfortunately, for the bigger picture of all this, it's exactly at this point in time during 1950 and 1951 where some really serious things begin to occur. Um, uh, in New Mexico, in Texas... Uh, for ex just one example, at a base in Texas, these things appear so routinely and at such low altitudes that the Army considers them to be a true threat. This is an interesting base mm -hmm. because this, this base, which uh, is going to be one of the first 
U.S. weapons, atomic weapons stockpiles. And the reason it's put alongside this army base is because it's a very secure area. They train artillery observers and artillery spotters there. Make a long story short, the base begins to accumulate some really solid data, triangulation data, trained observers who triangulate these objects, tell you how high they are, how low they are, ground level, how fast they move, all the solid data that you would really want to define this from a scientific standpoint and show that it's unconventional and anomalous. They don't try to send this all to the Air Force, and the people in Project Grudge don't want to hear it. They don't even consider it. They file it away, and it'll be decades before researchers find those Army reports. Now, what's, A similar thing yeah. – oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, but what I was going to enter here is that, again, you know, just uh, going back to my own personal experiences, Fort Dix in New Jersey is one of these places where they train uh, with munitions and uh, artillery, <laughs> right? Uh, at least, again, up, up until I left Jersey in the early 2000s, they were still doing it. Uh, and, and quite frankly, what's fascinating about that is that that is some intense observation training um, where, yeah, they are indeed firing, uh, you know, again, artillery <laughs> on the base. And they do it in places where the general public is really not likely to go anywhere near it. It's a very secure base, Dix, or at least was. Okay, um, and uh, and at the same time, the people they're training, it's not really necessarily about the training and the use of the artillery, but um, but it is in that you have to know exactly what happens when this stuff moves. You have to be aware of atmospheric conditions, other things that could intervene. You certainly wouldn't want to fire something up and, you know, clip out your own helicopters and things like that. I mean, there's a lot to this. So it's interesting when you think about a base like this in Texas that uh, it, it is loaded with people who are meant to know, and it's not just they're trained observers, but I mean, they're meant to measure things with their eyes uh, to tell you, you know, how many yards this is, how, how high up, what is the altitude, what is the rate of speed by their eyes, not necessarily with the electronic equipment that we understand today. Um, but literally, like, they're supposed to know the exact circumstances of all these things going on while artillery is being used. So isn't that interesting that people that are keenly aware and giving details on some of these anomalies there in Texas that are generally considered to be precise because of their training, um, that they're still not really paying serious attention to it? I mean, what, what do you have to say to that? Oh yeah, and and in this instance, these these artillery spotters are all using optical equipment, um, and the army took it so seriously they would set up triangulation points where you've got three sets of trained observers, all with thetalites, all with optical equipment, ranging equipment, to make the measurements, and then they crunch the data, and with this triangulation data, they can tell you exactly how high the object was pretty much what size it was and how fast it moves from one point to the other. And well, yeah, that's, the people at Project Grudge weren't interested. In another similar scenario at Los Alamos, of course, where everybody's heard about the atomic weapons design and assembly plant there, um, 
the scientists made a series of observations, including observations which included the detection of radioactivity when UFOs passed over during daylight. Mm -hmm. And the Air Force didn't want to hear about that either. The grudge people ignored them. In fact, the scientists were so frustrated, they got permission to set up their own study teams and collect data and they did and convinced themselves of what they were that what they were seeing was real. But again, during this period of time, that was not in vogue politically. There's there are a lot of I won't say, you know, political party stuff, but there's a lot of interagency, interdepartmental jousting that uh, obstructed what was going on with this understanding this phenomenon. Well, yeah, and, and it's about and setting the, priorities, yeah. right? I mean, you know, it's, it's really about setting priorities between and within agencies where this becomes not as high a priority uh, among those who uh, uh, seem to have, you know, the control at the time. And um, so this is an interesting thing. Let's move forward because we've only got a little more than a half hour left uh, of time well, to go through this. Go ahead. And this culminates, the fascinating thing is so, this culminates in the fact that after, as the career in war ends and is slowing down, 1951 and 1952, we do start setting up a really serious continental air defense with radar nets, with interceptors, and um, we get to a point in 1952 where, especially on the East Coast, on the East Coast and West Coast, there are almost daily UF reports, there are fighters being scrambled, there's interceptors being, this, I mean, bottom line is it's getting to the point where it, it looks like there's a preemptive strike about to occur. Someone is really doing reconnaissance. It's a real threat. And I cover this, we can cover it because we have the documents and the research. There's a, it's the point where, uh, the commander of air intelligence starts having to deal with it. There are enough reports that he, that he has a staff meeting and he calls the people in and, and it's like, you, I've been told there's nothing to all this and these other people are telling me it's really serious. What's the real story? I mean, I am tired of this. If there's something really there, I want to hear it. I don't want it covered up. I don't want it swept under the rug. And he starts yelling and he starts firing people. And suddenly the investigation becomes real again and the Air Force project transitions from grudge to blue book, which most people who have heard of UFOs have heard of. And that's when you get uh, an officer in charge of the blue book program who's really interested in it, takes it seriously, and you start getting a real investigation going again. Um, mm -hmm. All of this culminates in 1952, uh, when there are a series of incidents over the Capitol, over Washington, D.C., um, series of UFO reports, and the Air Force is totally unable to respond to them. You have a number of commercial airliners that encounter these things. You have ground radar stations over the nation's capital that encounter these things, and just think about this, Chuck. It, it's the height, not the height of the Cold War, but it's, you know, we have been thinking the Russians could attack us any time. 
And so things are pretty, pretty tense at the end of the Korean War. And we get UFOs over the Capitol, and it's from two to three hours before the first interceptor arrives over the Capitol. How embarrassing can it possibly get? No, fair, like, fair enough. And I'm wondering, you know, again, just for another level of context, is there any change between the Truman and uh, Eisenhower administrations regarding the general attitude to this uh, this concept at all? Um, it, you know, because obviously some some heads of agencies change over here. Is there um, is there any sort of you know market difference from one to the other? Not until this happens. Okay. It's, there's been no real change, and I, I think to a large extent, you know, the Korean War has has blown everything else away. You know, that that's just there's nothing else to focus on. However, what what happens is that after this UFO incident, this is when it changes because it, the president can't ignore this. The president, you know, there are newspaper headlines all over the United States about UFO, UFOs over the Capitol, and the Air Force has no answer. Mm-hmm. So we now know, and I, I would love to see the details of the me- meeting, but the president calls a meeting with the Air Force and a couple of national security people, and literally it's kind of like the title of the me- the title of the meeting, and that's all we really have from the logs, is Defense of the Nation's Capitol. And clearly the man is upset. And the Air Force can't give him the answer he wants, or any answer at all is reasonable. And he just sends them away and apparently pretty much picks up the phone and calls the CIA and says, well, the Air Force doesn't seem to be – What do you, can you guys tell me what's going on? Right. And this is the first time that the CIA becomes directly involved. And the interesting thing here is that by – the end of the year, the CIA's technical intelligence group has agreed with the Air Force Blue Book people and the Air Force Air Intelligence people, and all of them are in agreement at the end of 1952 that there is a direct and immediate threat to the nation, right. that these things are real, that they have focused in on the atomic warfare complex, especially in the Southwest, and that we've got to deal with them, and it is a national security priority. And it is this point in time when the director of the CIA is advised by his people and by the Air Force that he needs to take this to the president and the National Security Council and tell them that there is a direct and imminent threat. Well, again, for context, though, the CIA is still a very young agency, so to speak, at this time. So. They were developing this without the considerable backlog of intelligence. I mean, yes, they picked up from the OSS. Uh, we, we've documented that, you and I, on other shows uh, related to the evolution of the CIA. But if you put it, uh, you know, you, you superimpose that over this time period, it makes sense that they would have had to have uh, made fresh investigations uh, in, in order to explore this, and they wind up coming to, well, a similar conclusion where there is indeed a threat, but we don't necessarily know entirely the origin of all of these things. Uh, we're, we're, we're cons- we've concluded that there is some level of surveillance here uh, that is going on uh, regarding sensitive locations. 
um, and and stuff like this. Am I right? Yeah, and and the way it really it's it's fascinating, and this is one area that I go into pretty grim detail in the book is that at first when the CIA gets called in to this, their immediate reaction is the Air Force, they go back and look at what Project Grudge was doing and their immediate reaction is very negative. And the first reaction is, no, the Air Force hasn't done a very good job on this. There's probably nothing there. However, over a three or four month period, the CIA begins reviewing the stuff that the new blue book people have developed and becomes convinced. Uh, they don't collect a lot of new stuff themselves. They simply engage with this new group at Blue Book who's taking it seriously and decide, yeah, uh, the Air Force people have been trying to get somebody's attention for the last six to eight months, and nobody's listening to them, and they're right. Uh, and that's when it goes to the CIA director as a recommendation to – see – one of the things most people don't understand is even at the level of air intelligence or whatever, nothing is going to be tasked at a national priority unless it goes up to the National Security Council and is put on a tasking list. It, it's the the higher level intelligence agencies, the, there's the NSA. The people that really do long-term serious studies, not just an incident at a time. Let's let's study this over time and see if they're changed. Let's see what's happening here. That doesn't happen until somebody formally assigns it as a task, and that had never happened to the subject of UFOs before 1952. It was recommended to happen at the end of 1952, and then in 19, early 1953, something totally different did happen, and it never got that kind of recognition. So this is a subject that, as far as the records show, has never been tasked as a national intelligence priority. Okay. So when we put that, again, in context with the way ufology kind of discusses this um they feel as though the national security state must have gotten involved at roswell um yes that's just not accurate right that's absolutely correct okay no i'm just i'm throwing it out there so you can answer it obviously and i again so they some, can all come, come and hunt me up and in that case i i'm going to throw out the name of a book Sure. Everybody who really still thinks that needs to read Kevin Randall's book, Roswell in the 21st Century. Okay. And understand what he has come to learn about Roswell over the last 20 years that he's been working on it. Fair enough. No, and I, I haven't read that book, but I, I take your recommendation seriously. Uh, and uh, maybe I'll find a link to that book and put it in the show notes as well here. Um, because that is usually the, the jumping off point for most people, you know, when they want to study this. But let's continue on in the chronology here, because uh, there, there's a lot more to get to. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'd like to come to a vague conclusion about, well, maybe your personal conclusion regarding all this, because y- you hinted at it, but we didn't get there yet. So let's go through a couple more things chronologically, kind of jump through it. And uh, and and then I'm going to ask you the 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 uh, the final stupid question of the night, if you don't mind. So no, no go problem. ahead. And we 
we can because here's what happens. Basically, the, the seminal thing that happened is, and this is, again, another reality that people need to understand about how the systems work. So here you have the CIA director getting a recommendation. He can't immediately take it to the president. He needs to go through channels. It needs to be taken to the president, the National Security Advisor, and the National Security Council. But before you do that, there is a subcommittee that advises the National Security Council. It's their own advisory council that talks to all the services and everybody. Okay, back then, things are a little different now, but but you what you do is that National Security Director is really from this. I'm sorry, the CIA Director is really a member of that group, just as the Armed Services have their own members. So he would have to go to that group and say, "Okay, guys, we've studied it. The Air Force has studied it. They're going to support me. You guys need to write a memo." the National Security Council to make this a priority. Well, what happened is those folks pushed back and said, hey, we've all got reputations. We're all got careers to consider. We'll be happy to do that if you come back, not just with the Air Force's and CIA's opinion, but you need to give us a scientific opinion, scientific confirmation that these things are real. If somebody tells us they're real and you tell us they're doing these suspicious things, then we'll take it up. And strangely, and I, I again, there are people like Brad Sparks who have done tremendous work on this, the, the history of what came to be the Robertson panel. What really happened is uh, the CIA director went back and put together a panel, supposedly a scientific panel, that supposedly was going to give that endorsement, but it really got weird at that point in time. And whether, whether they were actually shown all of the information the Air Force had, all the data the Air Force had, the people that they put on the panel were a strange group. And, and basically the panel, which you would think was going to do a scientific assessment, ended up evaluating UFOs as a psychological threat. That's right. <laughs> so, Which had nothing to do with their marching order. It's like, well, that's a different panel. So the net result was they came back and said, you know, here, here's the real problem. The real threat is that we're going to be so overwhelmed by UFO reports and people seeing UFOs that we're going to overwhelm our reporting system and the Soviets will be able to launch a strike or they'll, and they ended up producing a report that said, no, we've got to convince the public to stop reporting UFOs. Uh huh. So this, this, and this otherwise that is yeah. the national security threat. That's the threat, not, you know, that's what we've got to deal with. And guess what resulted from that? I mean, people in the military and these people are, if that's what the committee said, guess what? Suddenly, you know, if you want to have any respect for your career, suddenly we get back, we fell back to what Grudge was doing. Let's look at it an incident at a time 
and come up with any possible explanation so we don't have to deal with it. Well, and and on the one level, another way to describe this, and I I hate to reword what you just said, but let me try anyway. Uh, what, What you come down with is, look, if we engage in a whole lot of this, not only will it encourage the general public to um, bring more of this to our attention, whether it's real or not, but it could be successfully exploited as a cover for real military action. Because, look, if the Soviets get wind of this, all they have to do is launch some sort of prima facie um, operation in order to make it look like it's one of these things to actually cover real movements. And therefore, they could gain a strategic advantage and literally, uh, you know, do a first strike kind of scenario on us one way or another, either taking out assets or attacking a particular uh, uh, part of the country that's important to our industry, whatever, you know, sabotage all of that. So this is where we come down on it instead of legitimately looking at it as the threat itself. They're looking at it as the psychological operation, which could be used to exploit the, uh, well, the the fact that our entire investigative situation could become so overwhelmed that we're now going to miss the legitimate yeah. threats, uh, either intentionally or unintentionally, right? A- absolutely. I mean, to quote some of the some of their own wording from the panel, it, you know, the reports could saturate our air defense system. They could miss. They could. It could be classic misdirection you know, pointing the air air defense in a different direction during an actual attack. It could divert ground observers. And, of course, it could fuel public fear. I mean, so, right. yeah, yeah, exactly, Chuck. You stated it well. That It's like there were two threats that, that you could have been considered. The threat of the actual things themselves or the threat that they proposed in terms of psychological warfare. And, and at this point in time, and from then on, from then on, from through the 60s and the 70s, the bottom line always was, unless that you, unless you show me an incident in which a UFO actually was a threat, where it, it caused damage, it caused casualties, it, if you can show me that it was a real threat, then we'll rethink this. Otherwise, it's a psychological problem. And well, we need to reduce the number of reports, right. reassure the public. And so it just took a, a complete tangent at that point in time. And and the Air Force never really got back to where it had been before the Robertson panel. No, that's that's the truth. So, you know, I want you to think about how you want to leap ahead in this story and get to, you know, around the end of the chronology that you cover here in Unidentified, uh, which is a, a fascinating book and does teach you quite a bit about how these things go down. But I want to offer an observation here that I think is relevant uh, even as we speak, which is that there is always this conflict, uh, not only in what the public uh, is exposed to, but what our military is exposed to and uh, what our, you know, overall, uh, uh, you know, defense is exposed to regarding two separate things that do happen to be simultaneously true but need to be focused on separately in in an operational sense. Um, Let's take it away from UFOs for a second. When it comes to terrorism and the concept of, you know, there could be a bomber, 
there is the actual effect directly of uh, what a bomber might do, what a terrorist act might do, and uh, the, the damage caused, the lives lost. And then there is the psychological weapon, which is uh, coincidental to the damage, but also useful ever after, useful as propaganda, useful as a weapon in and of, of itself. So there is the actual thing, and then there is the fear of the thing, and then there is the fear of it being utilized as a weapon of distraction, where you have, you know, look, we're, our attention's being diverted here, and here comes another attack. Um, or here comes another, you know, here's the real agenda. They might have lit off a bomb, but what they really wanted to do was make sure that our attention was on that while they do this. Um, so really, I guess it's it, it becomes three things, and quite frankly, it is uh, still, as we speak, a struggle. Even if you want to take a look at this whole, you know, uh, today was supposed to be the next, you know, uh, insurrection attack maybe and blah, 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 blah. If you want to take a look at that and you take a look at the psychological operation, the physical operation, and you don't even consider that that's, you know, necessarily a uh, organized terrorist attack, uh, but opinions may vary. Um, thing is, though, is that these considerations are an eternal struggle when it comes to defense anyway. And when you have a subject where the answers may not be definitive, uh, like in the case of UFOs, this becomes even more difficult, uh, it, it seems to me. Is that a fair observation, Larry, number one? Number two, um, let's jump ahead a little bit and, uh, you know, with the last uh, 12 minutes or so, get to, you know, not quite today, but uh, as far as you want to get in the book, Unidentified, and, um, you know, and, and tell people what, what, again, might be remarkable and rare in the book as you go through this part of it. And uh, then we'll be done with this particular episode, <laughs> okay? Yeah, I think in the first comment, I, the first comment illustrates why a book like Unified really is or can be a national security book. And because the, the issues and concerns of threats and warnings, operational versus, you know, psychological warfare, that's not usually written about in regard to UFOs. And that's one of the reasons I chose to go this direction, because there are similarities to all my other national security books. Um, it, it's not unique when you look at it from that perspective. Um, and you, and you just went through that. Okay. But to go on from that point. So what really happened is from then on through the rest of the fifties, through the sixties, um, the approach was to, diminish the number of reports, diminish the number of actual unidentified reports, uh, to diminish any, any consideration of this as a threat. So to do all of those things so that it isn't a, an or couldn't become a, an element of psychological warfare. And that's, that's the way the Air Force was directed to play it. Never Never look at the big picture. It, it was never moved up in the international intelligence. It was never tasked. So it was always looked at a report at a time. And the problem with that is there are some very powerful tools 
called intentions analysis, threat and warnings analysis, indications analysis that you use to determine if something's really going on. You, you don't, you can't look at it just an incident at a time. You've got to build a database. You've got to look at it over a longer period of time. You've got to see if there are patterns, changes in patterns, et cetera. And, and that was never done because the decision was made. We're just not going to go there. That's not the way we're going to handle it. And, and one of the sad things is that there were, and I cover this in the book, there are a whole series of, during the 60s and 70s, the critical UFO incidents move away from places like Oak Ridge and Los Alamos and Hanford and Sandia. They, they move away from where weapons were developed, where radioactive materials were developed, weapons were assembled. The whole pattern of UFO incidents, the good ones, move away from those locations to where the big strategic nuclear weapons are stored and and located. And those are obviously at the first uh, stockpile sites. Uh, what I, I mentioned earlier uh, was a stockpile site when we were talking about the Texas site. They moved to the early uh, SAC bases. They moved to the ICBM bases. And there are a whole series of reports through the 1970s of really high quality, low altitude. I mean, we're talking about a UFO seen by multiple observers, tracked by radar, and seen by people that just come right over and loiter over the, the megaton class weapons that are stored on SAC bases or at ICBM missile sites. None of these ever get studied from a national intelligence standpoint. It's just not right. done because it was never tasked. They're all, they might be reported as a, an operational report or a sit rep, a situational report, but they never get elevated and studied other than a, on a one-off basis. And right. so we never really get a, an intelligence level look at the phenomena. Well, I got to so be I, yeah. I got to be honest with you, Larry. The only time I've ever seen this pattern recognized, quite frankly, is among the people that uh, believe that they can attribute uh, the motives uh, of aliens to the fact that they were very interested. It seems like in our you know highly destructive weapons, and therefore they do recognize this pattern in a way. Um, but never consider what the real national security reaction is. Uh, just kind of, uh, they're, they're working from the angle of this is what the aliens are interested in. Um, and, and I'm not saying that uh, that is uh, entirely logical. <laughs> I'm just saying that if you start with the premise that uh, there are aliens in control of these things and they are extraterrestrial in origin, um, then, uh, then you would almost have to conclude that there is an interest, at least uh, a significant interest, in well, <laughs> what do, what do we call them? Weapons of mass destruction. Um, and it could be about you know a lot of different things from there. But that's the only place I actually see this pattern recognized is among yep. people that are trying to make that sort of a case. So with that, in the last you know six seven minutes here. 
uh, want to ask my final dumb question of the night and then ask you if there's anything else that we should throw into the mix here before we're done. But um, here's what it comes down to, and we teased it at the beginning. Um, you had an opinion about this topic where you didn't really have an opinion before you started writing the book. And over the course of writing the book, you developed an opinion regarding the nature of unidentified flying objects. Am I right or wrong? Uh, yep, correct. So with that, I'd, I'd love to know what it is you came to and uh, maybe why, if uh, if we can squeeze it into a couple of minutes. We can, and I, I think it's in three steps. The first is you have to make an assessment where, whether or not these craft devices, whatever you want to call them, are there. And my assessment, after looking over uh, 50 years' worth of data, is yes, they're not only there, but you can, as the Air Force did in the first year and a half, you can profile them, you can spell out their characteristics, you can you can describe what they can do and what they don't do. So, yes, they are real. My, uh, my assessment would... <laughs> It's not a new one. They made it. Air intelligence made it in 1947, and I'm with them. I, the following decades have only proven that assessment to be true. As recently as 2014, when we're now getting reports from Navy interceptors that have advanced radar, infrared detection system, they're seeing exactly what they were seeing with much better technology back then. Okay, so first assessment is some of them are real. Second assessment, what I did myself was not to assume that they were alien, but to simply say, okay, if they're anomalous, if they're real and they're anomalous, from a security standpoint, let's do an indications analysis. Let's see if we can find a pattern. Let's see if we can find a security-related pattern. So in the book, I essentially start back in 1945 and come all the way up to the present, as close as I can come, to essentially look at these in the contents that you just described, Chuck. Um, basically, is is there an indication that something is going on around the atomic warfare complex? And the answer is yes. And, and it's not only going on, it's in a very, I don't have the statistics yet, still working on the statistical study, mm -hmm. but what you see is not only statistically relevant anomalies that occur around those types of sites, but a pattern that shifts over time. In other words, the pattern starts off with a certain type of site, uh, radioactive materials production. It shifts to weapons assembly. It shifts to weapons storage and it shifts to weapons deployment. And we're talking about weapons of mass destruction. Right. So, okay, that's real. can show that statistically. Okay. That's real. One interruption here, Larry, and that is that you also have to obviously have already pre-sifted uh, from these observations that you are assessing as to what they are in, in your context. You've already pre-sifted what's a natural phenomena what could be a mistake due to, again, there are instances where, yeah, pilots weren't getting enough oxygen, this kind of thing, uh, and, you know, all sorts of real-world, uh, well, inconsistencies and incongruencies occur. 
So there's that. And indeed, there could even be a natural phenomenon connected to radioactivity, which maybe could be observed here, or interference with other things nearby because of the nature of the things at these bases, etc., etc. So you've already pre-sifted that out before you even started your process, right? Yeah, and you, uh, I think I could probably, given the databases that I used and some of us are using, you're talking about sifting tens of thousands of reports to a few hundred. So, yeah, definitely a massive sifting and filtering. And as I said in the beginning, only the most credible and responsible reports. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that that obviously goes on. So kind of to wrap it up, okay, at this point in time, the assessment is, yeah, there's something real there. Two, there's a pattern that emerges from the incidents that does relate to national security. And three, there's no judgment. So I did what's called an indication study, and I took the most conservative estimate, okay? If somebody is doing this, who might have the interest or the capability to do it starting back in 1946 and 1947? Who who could possibly have the interest or capacity to even think about doing it? So I did a decade decade by decade indication study of whether or not it could be Russian. And the conclusion I reached at the end of the study was no. In each instance, here's the reason why that doesn't make sense. Decade by decade, period by period. Why they don't have the capability. We know a lot about those decades now we didn't know back then as to what they could do and what they couldn't do. So my conclusion as I ended up, and, and to wrap it up for you is, yeah, there's something real going on. There's something – now, this doesn't exclude other real things that are going on. It's not what I study. But right. there's something going on around the U.S. that has gone on around the U.S. weapons complex for decades, and it's not <laughs> local. I can't tell you it is, but – you can draw your own conclusions. If, if it's not the Russians, I don't know any other quote-unquote local actors it could have been. Having said that, I have no clue as to who the actors are. Right. So what you come down with is I still have things that are unattributable to a foreign nation or the U.S. And what does that leave us with? Well, you kind of have to begin to think off-world. Uh, yep. Because it's either off that off, off time, off dimension, somewhere else, <laughs> some somewhere else or something else other than conventional threats. That's what it comes down to. So really, the fact that you named the book unidentified means that uh, your culprits <laughs> in these instances, or at least some of them for sure, remain. Guess what? Unidentified in your assessment. Is that right? Absolutely correct. <laughs> Okay, so with that, we are out of time, but uh, I do appreciate the fact that we went through this, and I think that is a perfect way to conclude it. Again, this is a, a series on the collected works of Larry Hancock, and by the way, Larry, could you give us the complete title? I will give everybody the links to go look at the book, uh, and if I can find it, the show from before that we did on this, but this was a decidedly different look at Unidentified, and what is the whole title? 
Unidentified the national intelligence problem of UFOs. That's it. And that's the end of the Ocelli Effect for this particular Thursday. Do appreciate uh, you, Larry, for taking the time to do this with me. We are going to continue this two weeks from now, hopefully, uh, with the next installment. And uh, we're still not done with the national security subset, right? So what, what are we on to next, Larry? Is it creating chaos? I think it is. It would be creating chaos. Yes, which we which have. Obviously, we've done a great job setting up tonight. No, it's just kidding. <laughs> Well, you know what? Uh, reality has set you up perfectly for talking about creating chaos. Because, uh, yeah, we might discuss exactly how successful that plan is, was, and has been. Meanwhile, the Ocelli effect is done. No matter who you are, where you are, when you are, I not only hope you well, you are well, but I want you to remember that I am merely Ocelli. All of you are indeed the effect. Good night.